Bible, let's open to Mark chapter 9. Excited with this study as we continue our journey through this gospel, looking at the most wonderful life of all, uh, the life of Jesus Christ. How many of you here, uh, just out of curiosity, you uh, have phones where you take pictures on? You take pictures. Not most of us do. I think they say, and they don't know for sure, they're always guesstimating, but they say that there might be 5 billion people on this planet who have phones that take pictures. And so they say, there are some estimates that say there's going to be somewhere around 14 trillion pictures taken in the year 2017. And, and you know, you wonder why. Why do they take pictures? And uh, usually it's a moment that you want to capture, that you want to appreciate. Every once in a while you'll take a picture because you want evidence. You know, the other day, uh, my wife saw someone who was working out, and it was, it was kind of cool because as they're done working out, steam was coming off their head. Have you guys ever seen that? You know, some people are like, oh, no, that's not real. That never happens. And so what she did is she took a picture of it to prove that it did. Well, in one sense, that's what we're going to see in our study today. There is a picture. There's different ways of taking pictures. In this gospel, in Mark chapter 9, Mark paints a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. You're going to see the picture with the eyes of your heart. And as a result of that, looking at the evidence, seeing the proof with your own two eyes, we can then come to a conclusion, number one, that we see him, that we hear him, and that we love him. And that's what Mark wants to lead us to. Notice here in, in, in verse 1, Mark 9, it says, and, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, as we go through this section, Mark 9, 1 through 8, it's important. This is one of those rare times but you might want to write it down. It's important to study the parallel passages so that you get a full picture. And so for that, you'd have to jot down Matthew 17, 1 through 8, and Luke 9, 28 through 36. But here in verse 1 of Mark 9, Jesus speaks a prophecy that some of these guys would actually see the kingdom of God present with power, he says, before they died. Now, just in case you're wondering, this is not a reference to heaven. It's not necessarily a reference to the future millennial kingdom in its fullness. What he's saying right here is that they would see the king of the kingdom before they died. They would get a glimpse of God in his glory before they tasted death, before they you know, swallowed the poison of dying physically. They would see God. They would get a glimpse of him in his glory. So that's the prophecy. So we read in verse 2, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So Jesus prophesies six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John to go hiking. It wasn't a little hill. Uh, it was a high mountain. More than likely, if you were to go to Israel, you would identify it as Mount Hermon, 
which has an elevation of 9,200 feet. It's close to Caesarea Philippi, which is where they were previously. And it's a mountain that has places of solitude that are simply surreal. And so Jesus takes them on this long hike up. And at first, you know, you wonder why. Why did he take them hiking? Part of the reason is provided in the Gospel of Luke 9.28. The Bible says that Jesus took them up on the mountain to pray. You know, Luke gives that information because the Gospel of Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. And therefore, one of the things you'll find is that he highlights Jesus' prayer life. And so, in his version of the account, he makes sure to tell us The reason they went to the mountain, he says, the reason that they went up to that mountain, they went hiking high that day, is so that they could pray. And, you know, I thought about that, and you know what, we can't just skip over this, you know, to be honest with you, uh, all this rain and snow we've been blessed with recently started stirring me up. I was thinking, man, I should go uh, up the mountain, you know, to do some snowboarding or some skiing, or or maybe I could throw a few snowballs at someone, you know, that's kind of fun. Um, It it just so happens also that prior to diving into this study, I was considering hiking up Chantry Flats. Any of you guys ever been there? You know, Chantry Flats, get some exercise, enjoy the view. You know, I mean, just, you know, there's that desire, I think, we have to go up the mountain at times. But isn't it cool that Jesus hiked high, that he went up that mountain to pray? You know, and I think we should learn from that. You know, just as a side note, wouldn't it be so cool if we followed his example, you guys? You know, get together with your family. Gather up your friends. You know, get away from it all. Turn off the television one night. Turn off your devices, your phones. And rather than, you know, texting the whole world, how about talking to God? You know, go hiking away from the concrete jungle. Somehow get away to pray. Wouldn't that be a blessing? And that's what Jesus did. The Lord led them there. And I want to encourage you leaders to do the same. Some of you husbands and dads, even some of you single moms out there, if necessary, you break out the chancla and you say, hey, we're going you know, to pray as a family because we desperately need to call upon God in the days that we live in. Uh, there's a million reasons to pray. I think you guys know that. Uh, sometimes people tell me they don't know what to pray for. You know, like, well, what do you mean you, you, you pray like, you know, an hour a day? Yeah, that's not enough time. I mean, there are a million things that we can pray for. Uh, I, I always think of that acronym ACTS, just in case you're wondering, well, how do I pray? What do I need to do? There's that ac- acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You see, in prayer, we draw near to God and experience his presence leading to adoration. And so, you know, when you're there and you're praying, you're not sure what to do, I tell you what, you just start worshiping. Thank you for the cross, Lord, and you worship him. And you can even throw some headphones on and listen to some awesome praise music by, you know, Chris Tomlin or Hillsong or somebody. And, you know, there, there's, you can add, adore him. And then, you know, in prayer, we search our hearts before God. We turn on the light and he shows the deepest recesses of our sins and we deal with them there, leading to confession before God. That's the C, adoration, confession. And in prayer, we, I think, see most clearly all around us, look at the blessings God is giving, leading to thanksgiving. 
So many things to pray for, so many things to thank him for. I always tell you guys, I thank God that the sun is shining, the earth is spinning, my heart is beating. I thank God that I was able to fall asleep last night, that he sustained me while I slept, that he woke me up in the morning. I thank God for my wife and my kids and this flock. I mean, there are so many things we can thank him for. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then the S stands for supplication. In prayer, we come to the one who supplies all our needs, and we can ask for help for our loved ones, help for ourselves, help for our nation. The Elongians call it supplication. And so there is so much to pray for. There's a million things that we can lift up as a church, and we need to know that prayer changes things, and it changes this and that and them, but most importantly, it can change me. And as a matter of fact, that's the visual we see on this mountain. Again, you need to go to the Gospel of Luke who tells us something very important at this point. You know, Mark tells us here in verse 2 that Jesus was transfigured before them, but we have an important detail in Luke 9, 29. The Bible says that as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. You see, Jesus was altered. He was transfigured. He was changed, the Bible says, as he prayed. You know, and I want to encourage you guys to know that because some of you guys here, myself included, we need to change. We need to grow. Some things need to, to die in our life. You know, some things, man, they need to, we need to breathe life in them. You know, as we pray, then, then we will change. And I want to encourage you, Monday night's prayer, Wednesday night, ladies' prayer, Saturday morning, men, pray. We, we're getting more guys out now. And then, you know, we probably got about 20, uh, 24 guys out last Saturday. I would, it would be so cool to have 100 guys there. What would God do if all the men caught the vision that they're the leaders and they are called first to get on their knees and pray? Sunday nights, last Sunday night, we had maybe 40 people here. Wouldn't it be cool to have, you know, 75, 100? What if the whole church caught the vision and understood that everything can change, that you can change, that we can grow, we can be empowered when we pray? You know, and I was trying, and I, as a pastor, to be honest with you, I don't like to be pushy. I don't like to lord it over people because I know we have a lot of responsibilities, you know, but, you know, if you can make it out on a Sunday night, you know, if you can, come. We're going to do it through the month of January because we want to see God move. You know, come from 6 to 7.30 and we'll pray because God can change this, that, or them, but God, most importantly, can change you. What if you became the next Martin Luther? What if you became the one, you know, like a, like a Amy Carmichael? Or what if you were called to be the president? I don't know what God has in store for you, but I do know this, that when you follow the Lord, it's great. It's glorious. But God's got to change your life. There's, there's got to be a fire inside, a passion. You know, and so here we see the visual that in Luke 9, it says that as he prayed, that he was changed. And although that's not the particular lesson of the passage, I believe that's the lesson of the Bible and a valuable visual you can come away with, that as he prayed and as we pray, we will be changed. You know, one of my responsibilities as a husband is to pray for my wife, and I used to pray 
primarily that God would bless her in various areas of her life. God, you know, change her. Sometimes that's how husbands pray, right? And then, and then one day I sensed the Lord say to me, well, you bless her. You bless her. You, Manny, be a blessing to her. And, and so I was talking to the Lord about that, and I said, well, Lord, if in any way the blessing is going to be me or through me, then Lord, change me. Change me. Because I have been given this responsibility that is awesome to love her as Christ loved the church. And how can I do that with just my love? And as I began to pray, God began to move. You see, that's the way it works. Lord, change me and make me more like you. And it's similar to what we read in verse 2, that as Jesus prayed, we see, notice again there in verse 2, that he was transfigured uh, before them. The Greek word rendered transfigured here, it means to change into another form. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis from, and it really means to change from the inside out. Apparently, the appearance of his face was altered. It was more than likely similar to the description of Jesus we read in the book of Revelation, where the Bible says his head and his hair were white like wool. His eyes were flames of fire, and he even says that his face shined like the sun. Think about that. Matthew's account of this says the same thing. In Matthew 17, too, his face shone like the sun. And so you guys look at the sun, and you see the, the brilliance of it. You can't even look at it. That was his face. Not just his countenance, but also his clothes. I mean, you know, when you read the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, you find that at the end of the day, these guys had no words, really, to describe how white his clothes were, exceedingly white, white like the snow, whiter than any cleaners or cleansers could ever clean. Matthew tells us his clothes were white like light. And so, you know, there he is, he's praying, his face has changed, it's altered, it shines like the sun, his hair, his head are white like light, his clothes, I mean, this is brilliant. There, what's this all about? What's going on right here? And what it is, is a picture has been given to them by God of who Jesus is. You see, we're getting a glimpse of his glory, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy that they'd see the kingdom of God present with power before they tasted death. And so as this is going on, Jesus is praying, Jesus is shining. You'll never, get what, you'll never guess what the disciples were doing at this point. You guys know? They were sleeping. They were sleeping. Read that in Luke 9.32. It says, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. And, you know, we see them doing this. Uh, thank God, you know, we kind of get the honesty of the Bible because that means there's hope for us. Do you guys ever fall asleep? During Bible studies, or you fall asleep uh, when you should be praying, it, don't lose heart, man. God still loves you. There's hope for you. You're like the apostles, you know? And so anyways, um, this woke them up. One day, they woke up, right? And they got to see Jesus in his glory. They even saw Elijah and Moses. Look what it says in verse 4. And, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. You know, in the next verse, we're going to see that they knew their names. And uh, I'm not sure how they knew their names. Uh, I don't know if they had name tags or something, but 
Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure, although I'm not 100% sure, that here's how it works, you guys, that when we get to heaven, we will truly experience the kingdom like these guys were here getting a glimpse and we are going to know people's names uh, even without being introduced, right? We're just going to kind of know who they are. We read something that kind of teaches that. First Corinthians 13, verse 12, the Bible says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Here it is, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And so what was happening was, was these guys we're kind of experienced a little bit of a taste of what the kingdom of God was like. And they're there, and we're going to see, they're in the cloud, they're seeing the glory, they're experiencing the presence and power. And as they're there, it just, they see Moses and Elijah, and they just know their names. You know, just as a side note, when I think of this, I think of, uh, I don't know, it's a personal thing, but, you know, the babies that my wife and, and I had that died at infancy. When I get to heaven, I'm going to know their names. I think of uh, her little brother that died when he was born, or my little brother that was, died when he was in a car accident. You know, I never met them here on earth, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to know their names. In, in this kingdom experience, we will know them just as Peter, James, and John knew who Moses and Elijah were. And, and here we see they just saw these guys there just talking to the Lord. When Luke gives us the content of their conversation in Luke 9, 30 and 31, it says, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so Jesus was about to die, and this was the topic of their talk. Uh, we don't know how long they spoke, but according to Luke 9, 33, Here's the thing that happened. And so these guys woke up, and right when Moses and Elijah were going to leave, right when they're going to leave, Peter sees it, and then he speaks up in verse 5. It says, and then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. You know, the Peter doesn't know what to say. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever been there. I've been there many times where I'm not sure if I should say something. This is what I'm feeling, but I don't really know if it's right or if it's appropriate to articulate at this time. You know, I think it's good for us to have a healthy filter, right? You know, Peter didn't have one, though, <laughs> at least not in the early days, right? Uh, they say it's better not to say anything and have people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Have you guys ever heard that, right? <laughs> They call him impetuous Peter, and you know, we might criticize him, but I think the truth is at times he kind of represents all of us, doesn't he? He kind of speaks on all of our behalf, right? I mean, you know, when the Lord told Peter that he was going to get, you know, Peter, I'm going to have to die, I'm going to get nailed to a cross, 
What did Peter say? Peter said, never. It ain't ever going to happen to you. No way. You will not die. We probably would have said the same thing. You know, when the Lord let them know that they were going to deny him before the next morning, how many of us here would have said, no way, Lord, I'll never deny you. Same thing Peter said, I'm going to die for you. Yeah, right. You know, when Jesus got some water and a towel and started washing their feet, he came to Peter and Peter said, no, oh no, you will never wash my feet. And I think we probably would have told the Lord the same thing. And here, again, he speaks out of line. You know, Moses, Elijah, don't go away, stay. We're going to build three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, and, and as Peter is speaking, as he's speaking, he gets interrupted, according to Matthew 17, verse 5, by none other than the Father, as this cloud then comes and overshadows them. Luke tells us that they entered into the cloud. They got to experience the presence of God Uh, more of this kingdom power. And then they heard the words, they heard the voice of God in which he said, this is my beloved son. Matthew tells us the whole sentence, in whom I am well pleased. And then he says right here, what does he say at the end of verse seven? He says, hear him, hear him. And, and, you know, you, you, you look at the story and you're like, Lord, what is it all about? What's the, what's the moral? What's the lesson of it? And, you know, let me give you guys three things in closing. There's a lot here um, about prayer, maybe. I encourage you in your prayer life, get away, have some prayer meetings. Uh, ask God to change you, you know, that you would grow and become more like Jesus. Uh, you know, the encouragement of knowing that when we get to heaven, we're going to know people's names. We're going to know even as we're known. There's a lot of things, I think, along the way, but, but three things, I think, are our primary. Number one is, is you gotta see him. This whole, this whole lesson right here, what is it? It's like a, a picture that's being taken by God. And he captures it just in case, you know, you, you need the evidence, so to speak. I mean, where in the world have you ever heard of anyone else in the history of mankind ever described like this? Nowhere, because there's no one like Jesus. You got you to see him. I mean, you know, face, hair, head, white. I mean, clothes like light. I mean, glorious. You, you got to see him. You got to see the Christ. You got to see the main thing about the kingdom is the, is the king. It's not Moses. It's not Elijah. I love what we read at the end right here. It says, only Jesus. There in verse 8, only Jesus. You know, when Peter saw Moses and Elijah, and they'd heard all the history of these guys, you know, he offered to build three tabernacles. In other words, what was he doing? He was giving equal status to these other men. Right along the status of Jesus. And let me tell you something, that's wrong. And so the father just rips through the sky with his thunderous voice and he says, no, this is my son, my beloved son. I love him in whom I am well pleased. I mean, it's like he wipes everyone else out of the way and he says, no, you have to see him. You know, he didn't point to Moses or Elijah. He pointed to his son, And you guys just want to encourage you as Christians, you know, make sure that you never elevate any man to the status of of your Savior, you know. 
I mean, you, know, you guys know who the head of this church is. The head of this church is Jesus. The head of the church is, is Jesus. I mean, I'm telling you this, and you guys need to know this, that every single man is expendable. I don't care who it is. I don't care what the church is. You may think, oh, they're so gifted. You know what? Take them out of the way. Jesus will take care of his church. There are no one like Jesus. We've got to make sure we never elevate any man to that status, and we don't make them a shrine or them a tabernacle. There's no one like Jesus. See him in his glory. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There are some people, unfortunately, they think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm special, I'm gifted, and if, you know, the church really needs me. No, we don't, especially if you have that attitude. I mean, I appreciate the, the men of God that God has put into my life. I thank God for the gifted guys that we have as a church. But let me tell you something. This is his church. And he'll take care of his people. He doesn't need anybody. And we need to remember that. Whatever side that we're on. You know, we need to see him. I mean, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And we need to remember that the best of men are men at best. Beware of idolatry. Remember his majesty. There's an important cross-reference. If you would like to go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. I mean, it's just about the truth of Christianity. It says in, in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so later on, as Peter gets older, he's about to die. Some say it's maybe about 30 years later. He says, man, I'll never forget. And this is the whole story I've been telling you from the very beginning, very simple. We saw it with our own eyes and we heard it with our own ears. We know who Jesus is. There's no one like him. And so what he's doing is he's sharing with them what he saw. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so one thing we got to make sure we come away with when we read Mark 9 is we got to see him. We got to you know, take in this picture that is painted of who Jesus is and just, man, let our eyes be fixed on him. Secondly, we have to hear him. And we got those explicit instructions from the Father, right? He said, this is my beloved son in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. He says, hear him. And, and in the, the Jewish culture, you got to know this, that to hear him didn't mean, well, I went to church and I got the message and maybe it was whatever, pretty cool, and I liked it. No, Shema, to hear the Lord, it means to obey the Lord. And so what the Father is saying is after you've seen him, one thing I want you to do, I want you to make sure that you obey him, that that there's this radiance, there's this uh, glory of God that leads us to obedience. You have to come to that place in your life where you're broken, you're surrendered of your own will, that you die to yourself. 
I mean, all of us, my prayer is that we would have that heart. You know, that's the Christ. I see him, and this is a Christian. I obey him, period. I mean, we stumble along the way, but man, this is our desire, right? To, to see him, to, to hear him, and then the last thing is to believe in him. The, to believe in him, you know? And what this is, it takes us from the Christ and the Christian to the covenant. You see, Moses and Elijah were amazing men, but they were symbolic of the old law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the old covenant. In a symbolic sense, Peter didn't want to let them go, even though Jesus was bringing a new covenant, right? And, and we need to move beyond the Old Testament and the old covenant. We need to leave the old ways, the old man behind. You guys, we've got to be willing to let that life go. It's, it's done. It's gone. It's over. You know, when I came to Christ, I knew that was one thing that God was calling me to. He was calling me to, to leave that old life behind. You know, it's not by keeping the law. It's not by my good works or some systematic religion of man. You know, it's, it's by this blood of Jesus, this new covenant that he's established. Imagine how awful it would be if my salvation depended upon me keeping the law and some unending list of rules and regulations. I mean, that would be crazy, right? Notice again how, how the Lord comes and, man, he overshadows them, the voice out of the cloud, and he says, hey, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so it's interesting, Matthew 17, it says, but Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. And when he had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now maybe you're here and it's time to let go of the old ways. Let go of the religion. Um, maybe you're here and you're afraid. And so what ends up happening is Jesus comes and he, and he just says, hey, it's okay, you, you know, you can trust me. You know, this is what he wants at the end of the day to see him and to hear him and then to believe in him. And as we do as Christians, it's so cool what God does is he gives us life. And the Bible talks about this everlasting life to those who believe him. That if you believe in him, you'll never thirst or hunger again. And there's this satisfaction, there's this salvation that we get when we believe in him. The Bible says that when we believe in him, that out of our heart will flow torrents of living water. And what those three things speak about is salvation and then satisfaction. And then God ends up using your life. It's so beautiful what happens when you're willing to let go of the religion, let go of that old life, and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you on that cross. The other day, uh, I'll close with this. I was uh, going into the, uh, the store, and uh, there's this young guy outside the store who was selling candy bars. And uh, you guys, you've seen them before, right? And so uh, I always get like a special place in my heart for those guys because I remember when I was their age, I was doing the same thing, right? And so anyways, uh, you know, I bought a couple of candy bars off of him. I wanted to share with him, but I, I didn't. I ended up going inside, doing some shopping. And coming out, I, he was he'll still there again, and he, he asked me if I wanted to buy candy bars again. And I said, you don't remember me? I bought two when I came in. <laughs> And I said, just for that, I'm going to talk to you for a second, okay? <laughs> and it was kind of cool. I just ended up sharing Jesus with him, you know? I said, hey, if you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? 
And he's all, I, I, I think so. He says, I don't think I've committed any of the seven deadly sins. That's the only thing that would keep me out of heaven if I committed the, the seven deadly sins. And it was a trip. You know, this guy is by about 19 years old, maybe younger. And, and it was just so cool. I was able to tell him, tell him, you know what? It doesn't matter what sin you've done. There's only one sin that will take you to hell. And that is if you don't believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if you place your faith in him, then, man, he'll forgive any other sin, all the other sins. And it's not dependent on your behavior, whether you're good or bad. It's dependent on whether or not you really believe. And it was cool, man. Right there and then, he opened up, and God did a great work. And so, you guys, just in case you're here and you don't know the Lord and you're not a Christian, man, this whole picture is painted, you know, so that you would see and that you would hear and that today you would believe.